Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fell, Head of Content here at HET and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from healthcare excellence through technology. Today's talk is on the evolution of the digitally empowered patient and meeting the requirements of a digitally enabled NHS during and past COVID-19. Our panel of experts will be considering the pressing need to deliver a fully inclusive user-centric design, the digital indexing of the UK, specifically who is exactly is able and unable to meet services halfway, and finally, what needs to be considered when preparing for the COVID aftershock of need and how digital solutions are expected to help. We have a strong lineup of speakers today, reaching many corners of the health tech ecosystem. All of our experts, um, all of our experts are enabling patients to better engage with healthcare services. Our moderator and first speaker is CEO of Orca and an esteemed member of the HET steering committee, Liz Ashall Payne. Liz founded Orca in 2015 to offer necessary guidance to app developers to improve quality and aid public and health professionals to find and apply apps that improve health outcomes. Initially a speech and language therapist, Liz has almost 20 years NHS experience and is a leader of innovative change in complex health economies. Our second panelist today is Matt Edgar, Associate Director of Design and User Research at NHS Digital, where he leads a growing professional group of 150 designers. He developed their GDS Service Manager Program and coached in the DWP Digital Academy. His service design clients have included the co-op, NHS organisations and local government. I'm pleased to welcome today Helen Milner, who is Group Chief Executive of Good Things Foundation, an international social change charity whose mission is a world where everyone can benefit from digital. Helen was awarded an OBE for services to digital inclusion in 2015. Uh, joining her is Jim Hughes, Strategic Advisor for Digital Programmes at MerseyCare NHS Foundation Trust. He led the Global Digital Exemplar Programme for Mersey Care for Northwest Boroughs and is the Programme Director for the Regional Digital Patient Empowerment Programme and um, PHR Ecosystem. He has 15 years senior experience in NHS at board level in primary and secondary care, leading on digital transformation, informatics and performance. We also have Cleveland Henry, Director of Cloud at UK Cloud Health. Prior to this, uh, Cleveland was a Programme Director at NHS Digital, worked for over six years. He led a number of national programmes, including NHS Choices and NHS Mail. Our final speaker today is Ros Davies, who has 25 years experience of co-designing and delivering social, health and digital innovations across healthcare and the broader public sector. Previous roles include Director of Social Inclusion at Good Things Foundation and Director of Localities and Communities at New Economics Foundation. A very warm welcome to all of our speakers for taking the time out to both prep and join us today. Um, we will be starting the webinar soon, so um, please note that our speakers will be answering your live questions at the end of their discussion. So make sure to add any and all new questions you have to the Q&A function and not the chat function where there is opportunity to vote up questions you'd like. We'll get to as many as we can. I'll now pass over to Liz. Thank you. Thank you so much and welcome everybody who's able to join today's webinar. I'm absolutely delighted um, to be able to chair today's session with the amazing panellists that we have today. Um, before I go on to each of um, our wonderful panel, panel members, um, I just wanted to share with you a little bit of the work that we've been doing at Orca. 
Um, for those of you who don't know ORCA, um, ORCA is a UK-based organisation and our mission is all about distributing high-quality digital health solutions to populations, patients and healthcare professionals. As we know, the marketplace of digital health is huge and is awash with good, bad and ugly solutions. And what we do is we review and rate digital health solutions and then promote those solutions in digital health libraries or repositories which are promoted to people so they know which ones are the best for them and their loved ones. And what we've been doing over the last few months is we've been collating the best solutions to meet the challenges that COVID has presented us with. Those challenges are not just COVID specific, they're also about how do we support our vulnerable communities, those who are self-isolating or even shielding. So what we've done is we've pulled out the best solutions to meet those needs and put them together into an app library, which is covid19.orca.co.uk. It's freely available and you can go there and find out which products could best meet yours or your patients or your loved ones needs. As healthcare professionals, you can use that repository to recommend or even prescribe products direct to your patients. And what's really interesting is since COVID, we've seen a significant acceleration of use of these solutions. And across all of our libraries, we've had a 600% increase in uptake of these solutions and over a thousand percent increase in recommendations through those portals. And I suppose that, um, you know, the backdrop for this um, uh, webinar is how do we empower people to use digital health? So I just wanted to share some of those stats. The way in which we're going to structure today's webinar is we're going to, I'm going to invite um, each of the panellists to share with us a little bit about the work that they're each doing. We'll then move to some questions and some discussion. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll take some questions from the floor. I know many of you have already submitted questions, which we've tried, tried to theme in advance. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Roz, first and foremost, um, to share a little bit more about her work. Thanks, Roz. Thanks, Liz. Um, it's a, a real, real privilege to be here alongside um, these fantastic panel, panel members. Um, so I'm the managing director of M Habitat. Only very recently, um, I started at the same time as COVID nineteen hit us, um, which was a really interesting experience that I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about in a minute. Um, we are a digital innovation and inclusion design team. Um, and uniquely, we are hosted by the NHS. So we're proud to be hosted by the Leeds and York NHS Foundation Trust. And our mission is all about making sure that a digitally enabled health and care system works for everyone. Uh, we use co-design, um, we use uh, quality improvement and management um, blended together, um, methodologies blended together. Um, uh, to sort of um, really, and we work with people who both use services and people who deliver services and commissioners to co-design digital tools, resources, services, um, and we do that through training, through convening. We're also interested in policy as well and the sort of more strategic side of things. Um, I also wanted to mention, um, really, because we are talking about digitally empowered patients, that um, I myself live with type 1 diabetes, um, and I have a personal commitment to creating the conditions where people feel empowered to live as well as possible, um, which I think is really important. And, you know, I think um, the context we're in right now is, for me personally, quite 
uh, difficult, but um, and I am using digital tools in so many different ways to help me manage my condition and live well. Um, uh, I also wanted to just talk a little bit about some of our projects. Um, so um, one of them is in um, uh, called Mindwell, which is a mental health platform that we've helped to co-design and deliver in Leeds. And I think we'll maybe bring that in a, a little bit later on. We've also worked in primary care with um, people, for example, with people um, with sight loss and impairments, looking at how, how they access services. We've worked in secondary care with people, for example, uh, living with dementia to try and work out what gets in the way for, for people and how could digital benefit them. Um, we've worked uh, with uh, national CAMS teams to start to explore how to share patient experience with CAMS teams and lots and lots of other different and interesting um, projects. Um, I'll leave it there um, and then hopefully bring in some more examples later on. Thanks Ros, that's a fantastic introduction and I know that you do much more than, than what you just said there so thank you very much. Um, okay, I'm going to um, ask Matt now. Um, Matt, if you're happy to share with us some of the background to the work that you're doing. Thanks Liz. Hi, so I'm Matt Edgar. I lead design and user research at NHS Digital and we're the information and technology partner to health and care system. So I work across our, our organisation, NHS Digital, but also closely with design leaders in NHSX, in the NHS Business Services Authority, um, in the Government Digital Service, um, to work across the national bodies to make sure that you know what we build and design fits together and works well for patients and the public and for NHS and care staff. Um, I joined the organisation about three years ago with the opportunity to build a user-centred design capability to really use what we know about end-to-end -end service design from a patient user-centred perspective to improve the services that NHS Digital provides across the system. Um, last year as well, I had the privilege of being um, on the NHS Leadership Academy Nive Bevan programme uh, where I was working closely with people from across the NHS sort of family from people who were working in a whole range of different positions in um, local organisations, in national bodies. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking and learning about system leadership there and, and how we could work together. And I feel like during this crisis, that's really been really been tested. Some of the, the simulations and the activity that we did last year has suddenly become um, sort of very, very real under pressure over the last few months. Um, feels like we're running this piece of sort of compassionate national infrastructure. Um, the NHS constitution says we work at the limits of science, but also with humanity and kindness. And it's just been amazing to see how, you know, in response to this unprecedented threat, all of those bits of the, the, the NHS's DNA and the health and social care DNA have come together to do that. Um, NHS Digital's particular role in this I think has been twofold so we're helping to support the front line there have been a huge number of both sort of quite big strategic things and also little tactical changes that people have been able to put in at incredible pace to um, to make something work more quickly make things easier and get out of the way get blockers out of the way for people who've got a, an incredibly tough job to do um, the other thing that we're doing is is running the digital front line. So when a patient or a member of the public 
Googles for coronavirus symptoms, what they see in Google is information directly from the NHS website created by our content designers with clinical input from our clinicians, um, user tested with members of the public to make sure that it's clear and easy to understand um, and funneled through our APIs and through the use of open web standards, not just onto the NHS national website, but onto into hundreds of other digital services and apps, including the big ones like um, Google search and Amazon Alexa and so on. So we're running 111 online, which has seen um, a, a 1.50 times the number of users it was seeing um, before the crisis going through 111 online on the 17th of March um, to, to give you some numbers as Liz has um, the NHS website recorded 3.4 million visits, which was the sort of largest number of visits that we've seen. We think that's an underestimate because the way our analytics are set up um, to protect people's privacy. Um, we have gone over 1 million NHS login accounts um, in March, 1 million nominations to um, people to nominate a pharmacy which they'll use for electronic prescriptions so suddenly those sort of core national services that we run saw a real step change in their use um, we've also um, put in some some work on the data side so for example helping to create the list of shielded patients um, putting extra information into the summary care records so that people at the point of need can access the information that they need to know about people's um, coronavirus status. Um, adding some functionality that was already in the NHS app backlog, but really accelerating that so that people could, could um, rapidly get access to video consultations and supporting primary care in that amazing transformation that, that they've had to make to an almost entirely remote, um, remote service. Um, and then some of the kind of can um, sort of technology things like enabling um, NHS mail users to access Microsoft Teams across the system again at, at incredible pace so I think it's been a real test of the capability that we've built over the last um, so many years um, Cleveland obviously was um, you know part of that team and on that journey so I'm sure that the stuff that Cleveland helped lay the foundations for that we've we've seen come to fruition during this time. Um, it's been a real test of you know, how, how user-centered was our culture, how agile was our culture. It's really shown us you know, the, the benefits of what we've built and also highlighted for us um, sometimes where we know we've got more to do. I suspect that the same is true of people working in local organizations that um, whether they're global digital exemplars or you know, some of the, the organizations that haven't been at the forefront you know what that what capability they have built has really paid off this is not something that people could do from a standing start so um i think that's been the thing that's been most um uh, sort of most real for me is is seeing how all of that stuff that we've been working towards suddenly has been tested in a way that none of us thought was going to be the case um, and in in many cases um teams have risen to the challenge and done more than one could possibly have expected and others it's really highlighted where we we knew we had some things to do and we definitely have some things to do now 
Fascinating to hear some of those um, figures there. Thanks, Matt. And we'll definitely come back to asking some questions on some of the points you've raised. Um, I'm going to invite Cleveland now um, to share the work that you're leading. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, again, absolute pleasure to be a part of this group and to be speaking to so many of you. So, um, yeah, so I'm Cleveland Henry. I work for an organisation called UK Cloud. Um, I think the, the it says what it is on the tin, doesn't it? So, you know, we provide cloud computing in the UK. Uh, as an organisation, we've been going for a number of years um, and we only deliver to public sector. Um, and we only deliver, you know, enabling technology, which is what cloud is. Um, our three areas of focus are uh, central government um, and has been in supporting a, a lot of the digital transformation that's been happening across uh, central government for some time. Um, everything from tax discs online and, 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 and the rest. Um, we also have another division called UK Cloud X that works on um, defence and secret services and a UK Cloud Health, uh, which is the one I'm, I'm associated with. And what we uh, do is, I mean, cloud computing is, is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. But I think cloud computing in health is still in its infancy. Um, thankfully, we've seen a massive uptake in, in recent times. And what cloud basically allows, I mean, we all use it personally, don't you? You know, you store your pictures and everything else in the cloud and the rest. But cloud allows us and allows organisations to really not be limited by capacity. So we talk about compute and store, allowing individuals to process unprecedented amount of data in a timely fashion. A number of technology projects or a number of projects related to health have been limited by the size of what you can get hold of. And what, you know, the solutions that we have provided over the last few years, Genomics England being a great example, allow huge sources of data to be processed uh, timely, at speed and at better value, but also not limited by what you can afford or what you've got. So that's what um, we, we've been doing. We're, we're, we've been constantly helping organisations move from or transform from traditional, um, well-known data centre operations, you know, where you request the IT department that I need some more capability, I need some more space and, you know, Tom in IT gets you some space in a couple of weeks um, to actually be able to switch on uh, that capability immediately. And as, as Matt mentioned, you know, that was one of the things that we did again across um, NHS UK. We started the foundations of that, you know, so that when something happened and the, the, one of the last ones when I was still at NHS Digital was Ebola, you know, so the morning after Ebola became big news, we had hundreds of thousands of people clicking onto that website. In previous days, we would have been limited up to how much capacity we had. Cloud gave us the ability to just burst. And no, no, no more such than, than recent. You know, we've obviously COVID-19 brought some unprecedented and continues to bring some unprecedented demands on services. And cloud computing has allowed um, a whole host of that. At UK Cloud, we've been helping a number of organisations. We've given them that burst capability for compute and store. Um, very much in, you know, and if we give a couple of examples, we've supported a, a large London trust in order to scan and then make available all their medical records um, 
um, for, for outpatient appointments. So they've been able to continue all their outpatient appointments with medical records that are available. And I like to always say this anytime, anywhere, <laughs> um, the martini element and what sort of cloud gives you. And that's, that's enabled people to do that. The one thing that I'm sure everybody's used to, we've been part of supporting organizations significantly with this remote access. Everyone needed to work from home and able to do it pretty quickly. So we've seen and supported trusts move from a couple of hundred people being able to operate from home to thousands. And cloud again as enabler has, has done that. And I think the bit for me where is always been a real uh, big driver uh, for cloud utilization is data. It's data analytics, data processing, and we've been helping and supporting. Um, and it's been really pleasing and heartening to be part of um, a data analytics platform that's helping um, some of the COVID analysis. Um, and again, cloud computing, and, and we've been uh, very lucky and very privileged uh, to be supporting to be supporting that. So that's what we do at UK Cloud, and, and, um, and I'm part of that. So I'm sure we'll talk about a whole host of elements um, of which this uh, drives. So th thanks, Kevin. And um, it was really interesting there, the, the point that you made about um, how technology is supporting us to um, in other elements of our lives, not just around health, but about how we now work safely to protect our health. Um, so thank you very much. OK, I'm going to go to Helen now um, and ask Helen if you can introduce the work that you've been doing. Absolutely. Good afternoon, everybody. So. Um, Good Things Foundation, I hope that you've heard about us before. So we're a digital and social inclusion charity and we work nationally and internationally as well as in hyper-local um, communities. Um, absolutely core to the work that we do is those thousands of community organisations and community partners. So small charities working in disability, mental health, worklessness, as well as community centres, public libraries, there's even a wonderful fish and chip shop in Stockport working with us in, in partnership. Um, we host a free online learning platform called Learn My Way that's really come to the fourth during um, COVID-19 with about half a million um, page views a day at the moment. Um, and we've noticed an increase from those people, um, employed people, for example, um, wanting to develop digital skills. And we work in strategic partnership with organizations like the NHS, like Department for Education, as well as corporates like Google, BT, Lloyds, Capgemini, um, JP Morgan, etc. I'm an absolute advocate for digital, um, but I'm also an advocate for those people who are excluded from all the brilliant digital innovations we've already heard about um, today. Uh, COVID has really accelerated the use of digital um, to make sure that we get the best possible tools as quickly as possible up and available to people. However, um, there are 11.9 million, so almost 12 million people in the UK who do not have essential digital skills, um, so they cannot use those services that are being developed. And 4 million people have never, ever, ever used the internet. There's a huge overlap between digital exclusion and social exclusion in the UK. That's a 90% overlap and that digital exclusion therefore exacerbates social exclusion. And as we will all know, there's a massive overlap between social exclusion and poor health and health inequalities as well. We have uh, 1.9 million households, which I just find completely shocking and so, so important at the moment, um, who are completely cut off from the internet, unable to afford it. So that's no internet at all, no mobile phone access, no uh, broadband access, so completely cut off from the internet. That's almost 2 million 
households. And it's also really important to remember that digital exclusion isn't binary. Don't think offline and online. There are many, many people who may have access um, and may use the internet a little bit and maybe even daily. Um, some of those people use only five apps or websites ever, uh, according to Ofcom, um, but they lack the digital skills or confidence to do things that I would think most people um, on this, in this audience and on this panel will take for granted. Um, we've worked in partnership with the NHS for um, six years on a program called Widening Digital Participation, looking at that crossover between people who are digitally excluded and at the at risk of poor health um, working with people to help them to gain the digital skills that they need to take charge of their own health using um, online tools um, as well as some deep dives for some particular groups such as um, people with dementia people um, who are homeless um, but also um, some great work uh, on the high street um, a just shout out to Nelsie Across those six years, we've supported over 600,000 people. Um, and I think uh, prevention and the use of digital and digital inclusion around health um, and uh, health prevention is really important in that work, but also that blend of the way community partners can work with health practitioners. And I don't just mean social prescribing. Um, so COVID-19, we were aware that it needed a really urgent and rapid uh, response many of our community partners at risk of, of not surviving, which um, so making sure that, that those people could survive, but also uh, these 1.9 million people who lacked digital access. So even if they had the skills, they didn't have the access. These people living in poverty, many coping with underlying health conditions and many whom are shielding. And so we've worked with partners to develop a program called devices.now to begin to get devices and connectivity out to those people. Um, we've only got just under 2000 devices out and we are hoping to get 10,000 out before the end of July. Um, so we are working uh, with uh, corporate partners um, and also hoping to work with government to do that. We already have a, a, a program set up. We're training people, which is absolutely amazing, um, who have never used the internet before to use the internet for the first time using telephones and things like Zoom. Um, so that, that's been a very positive thing. But empowering people to cope with this health crisis is really, really important, but also it's so important to make sure that no one's left behind. So hopefully speak about more of this later. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fantastic, Helen. It's great to hear about um, some of the work. You've had quite a lot of requests for um, sharing some of the documentation and more detail on some of those percentages. Um, so if, if you're able to share some of that data, maybe via the Q&A, that would be wonderful. Right, definitely. Um, and um, last but by no means least, um, I'd like to invite Jim to share um, the work that, that you're leading across Cheshire and Merseyside. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Liz. And um, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, so um, I uh, work across uh, Mersey Care and Northwest Boroughs, two mental health trusts um, in uh, in the in the northwest, um, and they're mental health and community uh, based community services trusts. So we have something like between the two trusts, something like ten thousand employees, which will become relevant later when I talk about some of the stuff that I'm doing. Um, I also do some work across Cheshire Merseyside, leading on a uh, uh, leading on a, um, a patient held record uh, program uh, for, for, for patient empowerment. Um, and 
ostensibly that is in order to give um, people access to their uh, clinical records, but also to, to enable people to have access to a managed ecosystem of apps. And that's where we work closely with um, uh, Orca in, in that respect. And importantly about those apps is that we're aiming for that ecosystem that all of those apps are um, interoperable. So that uh, the example that I uh, commonly give, for example, is, is, is if um, uh, somebody's using a maternity app uh, but has gestational diabetes and maybe using a, gest uh, a diabetes app, that actually they're not ent entering the same information uh, twice, that that information can be entered and it can, it can then populate uh, another app. So this notion of a sort of... Um, uh, an ecosystem of apps and access to clinical records through um, through a device or a laptop is important with access via NHS login. So it's properly authenticated and, and that we manage consent through the, um, uh, through the, through the individual's uh, consent. So um, I guess that was all, you know, that was uh, plowing along. Uh, and then um, with, with COVID, we, uh, we we paused that and we repurposed some of the uh, portal side of it to produce a, um, uh, a, a, a a portal both for our workforce and for um, uh, and for the, the the public in order to give access to um, the um, the Orca uh, COVID nineteen um, uh, website and also to give access to uh, to give free access to, to um, psychological therapies online to help people cope with COVID and that was provided uh, through SilverCloud. Um, and then there's a host of other um, uh, resources that we put on this portal site which we call, uh, which we call Alma. Um, so that was, that was uh, in, in the early days and I guess some of the other things I've been working on um, and, and, and leading on is uh, I mentioned about all our staff um, so I'm, uh, we've rolled out video consultation across um, all of our clinical staff across those um, uh, two trusts. Um, uh, we've extended what we had was a telehealth program. We've extended that uh, to deal with COVID uh, using the shielded list. Um, and we're now using telehealth and monitoring for within Liverpool, about 6,000 staff. And we've built the capability for that to become regional so other CCGs across Cheshire and Merseyside can also use that uh, telehealth facility. And then most recently I've been working on a, um, uh, the, the development of a, uh, an intelligent population health platform for um, treating, testing and tracing in order that as we go uh, and, and working with the um, predominantly the out of hospital cell in order that we're able to, um, uh, I guess, predict and prevent once we get out of pandemic into the, that sort of epidemic type phase and identify hotspots and be able to be upfront in terms of uh, where interventions need to take place. So I just, uh, that's my, uh, that's, that, that's what I'm doing. It's, it's been incredibly interesting. Uh, I'd just make a couple of reflections, and I guess that this is what will come back later in the discussion. I think, I think the first reflection is that um, uh, 
so for for me professionally it's very interesting that uh, in these times it's possible to um deliver a three-year digital strategy in three months uh who knew <laughs> um I, I guess the the other thing that's important is the extent to which um within our um within our workforce we've changed practice and possibly forever i would say that in terms of um things that we've done for um uh for patients and for our service users that actually we can't move back even if we wanted to we've let the genie out the bottle and um and, and we've actually set new expectations of how healthcare will be delivered and accessed and delivered actually and I, and I think that would be very difficult um, when you have a demand from a public against what was traditionally a health service that said how health was delivered. And I think we've, so that is a very empowering statement to make, that it will be the people who decide how healthcare is delivered. It will not be the organizations who decide how healthcare is delivered to those patients. And that's a very empowering situation. Uh, absolutely recognize i think the helen's work I, we've worked with good that good good things foundation in the past um the, we cannot do this unless we properly think about equity and we properly think about access to to, to those um who we term digitally deprived um but we recognize are socially deprived because many of those are in our mental health services, uh, unsurprisingly, in, in, in the Liverpool area as well. I'll just end with a little story about um, our perinatal, one of our per perinatal people who's using video consult, um, who said that going forward, what she noticed was that um, she, she thinks she'll always do face-to-face -face first consultation but all the follow-up consultations will all be with video consult going forward because you see people in their own home with their children, relaxed, not anxious, and you get a very different consultation experience, both for the practitioner and for the, uh, for the patient. And you, you will not step away from that as a great experience simply because we're out, we're out of this. And, and that is just one of very, very, very many experiences that, um, that, 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 that we can relate. So I'll leave it there, Liz, and um, happy Thanks, to Jim. see how this Thanks, develops. Thanks, Jim. Uh, just listening to you all, one of the things that everybody's commented on has been this mass, uh, this huge adoption um, of digital um, health um, in light of the COVID crisis. And I just wanted to direct the first question really to Matt around, um, you talked about some of that accelerated access and significant increase in people accessing digital health technologies. And there's lots of questions um, from um, people listening today around how was um, user-centered design used, and I know it was, um, yeah. in developing those mm. offers. Um, mm. And how has that changed since COVID and how are you incorporating um, yeah. some of the gaps? Yeah, okay. So so um, I did notice one of the questions about, you know, what's our, our organization's level of um, user-centered maturity, I suppose. And, and I guess when I, when I joined the NHS about three years ago as um, head of design and on my first day the first question that someone asked me was what colour they should paint the walls in an urgent treatment centre and I sort of realised that you know we had some way to go to explain the value of design to the NHS um, 
it, it would seem very much as sort of the form giving, the making things shiny or glossy or um, sort of marketing. We've definitely moved on beyond that, where there are teams across, you know, not just in NHS Digital, but other national organisations and in uh, working in some amazing sort of pockets of user centricity inside local trusts and um, CCGs and CSUs, um, where people now understand that in the design is there to help you build build things right. It's there to help you know, make processes and, and structures that work for patients and the public and for staff. Um, and it can increasingly inform not just building things right, but building the right thing, helping decision makers to decide where to put their effort. So you know, a, a big part of what we do, I think, is actually about simplification. It's about maximizing the work not done. It's about making digital services that do one thing well um, and aren't burdened with lots of extra features that confuse people. And I think you know, where we followed those principles is over the last three years in what we've built, it's really paid off. Um, it's really shown the value because you know, when we needed to scale rapidly, we were scaling a modern NHS.UK website that was already very highly performant, that was already you know, designed for very fast page loading to be, be accessible. Um, I don't know how we would have scoped if we'd had to reach those, those amounts of traffic on something like 111 online with a service that was bloated and badly designed and confusing for users because we'd have just been generating more, more contact and failure demand. So, so I think that's really proved its worth. But then as we've had to rapidly iterate and change our products in response to this situation, you know, so for example, NHS Pathways, um, the, the clinical, the algorithms that underpin the 111 telephony and online services have had to massively pick up the pace of their new releases, releasing new clinically assured user tested information um, very rapidly. Um, one of our product managers said, you know what, we're sticking to our UCD guns here. We are, we haven't cut corners. We've tried to, you know, we've picked up the pace. We've had user researchers who suddenly have to work from home doing user interviews with Zoom calls and sending out surveys to anyone that we can get to answer things online. Um, but it became even more important that we didn't release things that didn't work and were confusing for people at the height of a crisis because that would just be putting even more burden onto the system. Um, there have been some times where we haven't, you know, we weren't ready to do that and we didn't do it. And for whatever reason, you know what, that's come back to bite us. And we've, I think some people, some of our senior leaders are learning lessons of kind of, you know, why, why we work the way we do and, and where it proves its value and why, why they, those aren't, aren't corners we can cut. Um, particularly around things like digital accessibility, where, you know, as, um, as Roz says, and Helen, you know, we just can't afford to exclude large proportions of the population from the use of these services um, when we're creating services that need to be for everyone. Um, I guess in terms of my work as um, associate director for the team, I'm probably spending less time making PowerPoint and going into meetings to persuade people and more time aligning our teams and facilitating conversations across teams because one of the ways that we achieve pace is by working in small tight-knit multidisciplinary teams there's an ever-present risk that if those teams don't talk to each other that what we create overall isn't coherent so 
Um, whereas, you know, I was was doing that already through the medium of kind of you know, boards and conversations and, and sort of papers and discussions. It's been very much like you two need to be on a team's call right now to sort of work this out and sort of much more rapid and tactical. Um, you know, our, our design principles have held strong through through this period. So you know, we said that we design for everyone, that we make services accessible. That's really important. We said that we designed for trust because, you know, although patients and the public may be willing to um, may be willing to give up some privacy um, and, and sort of a little bit during a time of absolute crisis, we know that that won't last forever. And so what we do now still needs to meet exactly the same high standards that we set ourselves for information governance and security that we, you know, we, we've always had. Um, and then the design principle of making things open. So the fact that we had created and open sourced all of the front end code that underpins the NHS national website, it's been um, amazing to see you know, teams across the NHS who rapidly needed to spin up a website to do something, just be able to go and access that code and create something that um, has a baseline level of accessibility mm -hmm. built in without um, having to go back and reinvent all that stuff. So. I think open source actually or, or openness in a broader sense has also really paid off as a strategy when you need teams to work rapidly with aligned autonomy but not with um you know you just don't have the um capacity to um, make every decision from the center and have some kind of top-down control over everything so having built capacity having transparency and openness has been the dominant strategy there Thanks, Matt. And um, thank you very much. You've answered more than just the question that I asked. You answered a lot of questions there around <laughs> regulations and standards, which is great because those are some of the questions that are coming up. Um, that centralised versus localised approach. It's really interesting. Um, Rose, I was going to come to you um, to pick up on some of the points that, that Matt, Matt was talking about there. Yeah, um, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is about that people who are um, uh, suffering from or at most risk of health inequalities are also at most risk of uh, being excluded from digital and they're also at most risk of being affected um, uh, by um, COVID-19 and by that I mean death rates which is um, the ONS uh, said a couple of well, last week that um, people who live in deprived areas are more than doubly likely to die of COVID and I think that's really really important poverty is an underlying elephant in the room here um, and um, and actually, uh, as a, um, uh, an organisation based in the north, it's worse in the north. And I think we've got a duty, um, uh, people who work in digital, in health and care, particularly in the north, have got a duty to do something about this together. And I think it is going to take a strategic push at a national level, um, regional and local, and it's going to take all of us to do this. And one of the little silver linings um, to COVID has been how everybody has stepped up in all their different roles. People individually as volunteers, people in communities, the voluntary sector um, and the public sector and I've really seen it happen in, in Leeds where we're based um, and I wanted to talk about an example of, of, of you know how how difficult is um, this this is so we we co-designed in a, in a very careful way um, something called Mindwell platform which is a mental health platform in Leeds which is about I guess it's a one-stop shop where people can find out about services activities and information around mental health in Leeds and um, we did that very carefully. We've done it over a number of years. We've done it in partnership with um, with the, the the whole public sector and, and third sector 
in 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 Leeds, and and it's been really useful in in this in this um, moment of crisis. We have um, we've set up a, a corona um, coronavirus mental health hub page, and it's had over five thousand hits in in one month. So we've been able to put um, up to date information in real time up there, and and lots of people have been accessing it. However, the challenge that we've got is that we have people living with mental health conditions who are living in poverty who are more likely to be digitally excluded in, in our city. So what about those people? You know, we're, we're compounding health inequalities by, by what we're doing. And there's been such a lot of thought and effort that has gone into, you know, um, reaching across our infrastructure. So we have um, local, local health hubs across, across the, um, the city. Um, the, the CCG, the, the Mental Health Trust, everybody has been trying to work hard to get information out, to find out you know, how people are, are feeling and to, and to support people in, in a way that's meaningful to them. And we've been doing things like paper copies, etc. But, but what that's really shown, that's taken, such, that's taken longer and a lot of resources. So it's shown the value of digital and also the big gap that we've got. And, and I don't think it's enough to give people paper copies of stuff. I think we have to get to grips with this digital social exclusion issue right now and and, and I hope that COVID-19 has you know people like Helen have been on about this for years and I hope that COVID-19 has really sharpened our focus and and really given us the motivation and what by us I mean everybody who's pushing digital in health and care to do something about this together um, and I really think we can do this and, and I think um, you know we've got some of the, the key factors here we've got um, we've got you know brilliant community infrastructure everywhere we've got you know public sector we've, we've got all the ingredients that we need to do this and it's unacceptable just to leave those people behind and in the corner and, and put it there as a too too difficult to tackle issue yeah no th thanks Ros. I, I, I think that's um uh, you've made some amazing points there um, and one of the things that we're getting asked about is obviously we are able to support the crisis, the current crisis, um, but what happens in the aftershock? And Helen, I was going to bring that question to you. So um, we've had a couple of questions very much around um, those people who are from maybe more vulnerable or deprived communities, not necessarily engaging in that user um, centric approach um, and therefore how do we address their needs more directly and Ros you were just touching on some of those points um, but not just how do we deal with um, the crisis as it currently stands but how do we deal with the aftershock of that? Yeah I think um, that uh, one thing I want to say is that that um, there's a lot of talk about um, you know, when everything's back to normal, as it were. Um, but unfortunately, some things are still going to be the same, like there's still going to be millions of people living in poverty, yeah? There's still going to be millions of people who are both in poverty and experiencing poor health. Um, so actually, what we're seeing with the COVID-19 crisis is that this isn't a new phenomena, it's just that they've become a lot more obvious and, and, uh, and, and even more important because that the solutions are all digital and therefore the people who don't have access and don't have the skills are actually going to be the people who are most hard hit and most affected. Um, that, uh, you know, one of the things that I hear often, I mean, nobody here has said it, is about how COVID-19 has been so levelling. You know, just because the Prime Minister um, had COVID-19, that doesn't mean we're all having the same experience. You know, I live in a nice house in Sheffield. I have a lovely garden outside. I can go and sit in it. I've got good Wi-Fi. I've got great skills. I've got a supportive family. Not everybody um, has got um, that same experience. Um, 
I think it's also important to remember this is going to last for a really long time. You know, some of those people who are shielding are going to be shielding for many, many, many months from now. This isn't something that, you know, we've, we've flattened the curve and then everything's going to be okay. Um, so people who um, are lacking, uh, I'm going to just talk about devices. And I just want to say that I've worked in digital inclusion for 20 years. And I've always talked about skills and about motivation and about confidence. But the thing that shocked me the most is how many people are desperate, how many people in our communities are being supported with food, with medicine, with other support, but who are saying, I now know I need a digital device. I now know I need access to the internet, but I just can't afford it. And that um, the other thing that I'm shocked by is that when I'm talking to decision makers about this, they don't believe we can do something about it. And we can, as Russ is saying, we have a vibrant, effective, powerful community sector um, supported by people like ourselves, but also some of the big companies are coming um, to the fore as well. And we have a way of supporting those people to get devices, to get connectivity, but also to get the skills that they need in a, like a multi-channel approach. Um, and so by multi-channel, by face-to-face, -face, I mean they walk with a tablet to their front door and they put it on the front door, having already installed all the apps and shortcut codes to the uh, icons, to the resources that they need. And they have a face-to-face -face conversation at two plus meters. And then when they go around to deliver their food package the following week, they say, how are you getting on? Shall I give you another call? Have you, have you had a have you had a go at Zoom yet? Have you had a go at video calling? Um, they get in touch with their relatives who they can then put in touch with them to make sure that they're practicing video calling. They're then putting them in touch with other people like them in their community who are also shielding or also have underlying health conditions are also um, lonely. They talk about being lonely at nighttime, right? Because they, they cannot contact people. They cannot see their loved ones in their faces to actually know that they're okay. So I want to talk about um, access to the tracing app and I want to talk about accurate and relevant health information because of real human beings who are actually being excluded from very, very important services. And I can put a twist on that for health to say that obviously that's going to um, significantly um, impede their mental health and any um, improvement to any of their uh, underlying health conditions. But I think we have to make sure that the step change that we've made in urgency, but also in creativity, in, in understanding user needs, in um, investment, um, actually does continue and that we don't leave these people behind and we don't put them in the too hard category. It's for me, I think that digital inclusion, but also understanding there are 2 million people who can't afford it. And many, 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 many tens of thousands want to do it. And that we can actually uh, mobilize with partners that that community support. It's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. If we're going to put this country back on its feet, we need to make sure we absolutely do not leave those people behind. And for the health of the nation, we need to make sure we don't leave those people behind, you know? So this is really, really important. And for any naysayers who say that we can't reach, find, support these people, the combination of amazing community organizations and, and, and mobilizing, coordinating at a national level, we can include these people and we can do that now.
Thanks, Helen. And you've, you've had quite a few comments saying what an amazing, powerful message you've just given. And I think to both um, Helen and Ros, just identifying some of those key points, talking about that elephant in the room, being open and transparent about this as a conversation is absolutely critical um, because if we don't discuss it, then we can't aim to challenge it or fix it. Um, I was going to um, go to Cleveland actually now um, because, um, you know, uh, the, the, there's a, there's a, a growing sense of some people believe that we're thinking too simplistically about technology at the moment. Other people are thinking it's overwhelming how much technology there is available. Um, and I know that you're um, a bit of a visionary. Um, and I was really interested in, in hearing your opinion on, you know, what are, are we doing too much? Are we not doing enough? And, and not just also thinking about um, enabling patients and populations and users of services, but also from a workforce perspective. You know, at the centre of this, we do have health and care professionals. So are we doing too much? Are we not doing enough? And what does the future look like? Wow. Uh, okay, there's a lot in there. Uh, visionary. That's a, that's. Thank you. Big compliment there. Am I a visionary? <laughs> maybe maybe that's to do with uh, thirty years at this game. So I started my career in 1990 in health technology. Uh, so uh, yeah. So I've been around for a while. And interestingly, as well, I also spent um, quite a bit of time in banking during the time, if I can call it that. And we did a significant amount what we classified in the banking sector as channel shift. You know, we're almost talking about this whole change now. And in the banking sector, those of us, us will all remember um, all what went on and then how we've moved to, you know, uh, banking, online banking as just a norm. It's as much as, you know, eating a bag of crisps, it's become that. So I think for me, you know, technology itself in, the, in this space is, is, is a key enabler. Um, and it provides, I fully believe, some great opportunities to, to enhance and improve and support health and care both the giving and receiving of such and wider still utilizing that as, as Ros and Helen have talked spoken about in the wider communities and you know it really those those elements are really close to my heart being a trustee for a community foundation that tries to support um, and assist those individuals most at need uh, and also a, a, a NED at a mental health trust in Leeds. So, you know, very close to my heart in there. So are we thinking too small? Potentially, I think what we've got, for me, I think what we've got to look at, we've done, um, and, and Jim said, uh, three years in three months. Someone else said to me on a yesterday, four years transformation in four weeks. Um, and I think we've done a lot of things quick and dirty to make it happen based on an emergency. And, and, and I think what we've now got to do in my mind is really not go back, but look at what we've done and how do we take them forward? How can we utilize technology to really enable this anytime, any place? How can we look at the difference in how we deliver care and receive care and that you know we talked about and uh, one of the one of the panelists mentioned about the difference in people being then in their home you know receiving care and that you know i think about the just simple things like blood pressure readings you know white coat syndrome you know where if i'm at home it'll be more accurate and more relaxed all that sort of good stuff you know mental health another one in those you know where would i prefer to have that type of consultation 
in a sanitized room with weird lighting or actually in a room in the house um you know and, and really so i think we i think we've got to look at our pathways of of both delivering and receiving and really look at ensuring that the technology we use is actually not just a make do but is de developed and delivered to actually be intuitive and to work for the audience whichever audience that is and i think for me that's really really important we've pulled down off the shelf a lot of very very good technology but some of it is still clunky you know how easy is my 85 year old mother able to interact with a video consultation we need to make those as simple as possible she needs two buttons on the little screen that i've just bought her the other day nothing more anything else it's going to fail um, so we've got to look at you know i think across the space but we've got to do it we can't boil the ocean and that's key you know are we doing too much we're not doing too much but it's ensuring that we focus on the areas and the people and really get that balance right in order to uh, improve what we're going and and take this forward so that's you know yeah you... no that thanks me that, that that's really helpful and that brings me on to another question that i was going to ask jim about and um what you were talking about there is that covid has presented almost a step change um, an, an opportunity for that step change and we may have had to do things in a knee-jerk reaction <clears throat> to deal with the crisis but how can COVID provide the impetus for a true transformation um, into using digital um, in health? And um, an additional question in there, Jim, is how will it be sustained? I'm going to direct the hard question. Um, lots of questions about um, sustainability, particularly from a financial perspective. Yeah, I think it, it, it's... Um... It's raised a lot of interesting questions about sustainability because I mentioned earlier that, um, for example, you know, we extend the telehealth program. We have a different pathway of care then for how we monitor people in their homes. We extend uh, video consultation and people will expect that to, to continue. In terms of the sustainability, quite often people will say, yes, but you know what, the Attend Anywhere license was nationally funded and how's that going to get funded going forward and i suppose i go back to um um some of the sort of drivers for for, for um digital um strategically which was how do we move from a physical estate to a digital estate and that if you're an if you're an organization looking to sustain something then that there, there are two elements around that digital estate one is how it's uh, driven by the demand of um, uh, patients in terms of patients and service users, a new way of accessing. And the other is uh, uh, how do we, when we make that shift, how do we also shift the funding? Because quite often you'll find within the, the boards of uh, organizations, trusts and so on, uh, the board is always really, really happy to talk about physical estate and the next thing that's going to be built and da, 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 and then talk about digital and people look at their feet a bit and then, you know, have we got someone who knows something? And I think what this has done is brought uh, digital very much into the board tape, to the, to the table at the boards so when people are talking about capital expenditure going forward, for example, there might be that they will be as willing to talk about large capital programs for digital as they are about building the 20 million 
uh, outpatient unit or whatever it may be, okay, or new hospital. And I think this is, so the sustainability uh, comes from a, um, a, shift, a, a shift in mindset within, within, um, within, within organizations in terms of their, uh, their, their thinking. But the, the real driver for that will come from, um, uh, uh, from the demand from, uh, from uh, pe pe patients and, and, and the public. And, and when I talk about that demand, it's not just in terms of access to health services, because the other thing that we have seen is the explosion of consumer digital products and consumer digital usage of things like Zoom and so forth. Um, and that is the that is the that is in the public mindset. So so that is not now. Um, it's not just now about health apps. It's not just now about video consultation. It's about how we communicate as as a society because we have we have through this explored what we need to do. So the driver, you know, the 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 the, the driver will be will be there and and. When I talk about that driver, what that actually means is um, co-design, not because we think it's a good thing, and some people say, oh, we must do co-design as a sort of tag on. It's actually the first thing, because that is actually where the, that is actually where the problem both, um, both starts, and that's actually where the solution begins, not yeah. as, a, as a tag on to some project designed by someone else. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 so this, so the sustainability will be driven from from demand, and it will end up in us making that uh, that left shift. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. I mean, we could easily continue this conversation for the whole of the afternoon um, to give you an idea of the kind of engagement that we've had from the audience today. We've had almost 150 questions um, and obviously we've only touched the surface. There's some specific questions which um, will relate to the panellists who can contact individuals who've asked you specifically for some information. There's one about the tablet that um, Cleveland has given to his mum, for example. <laughs> um, but I think I think what what we've what we've heard from today is that that analogy that Jim talks about around the genie is now out of the bottle, um, and it's not about trying to put it back in. It's a we, we now have to deal with some of the challenges and opportunities that that presents, and that this is now a journey, and we need to work in collaboration. This isn't just about health. Or care or community or charity it's about us all working together with the user at the center and dealing with some of those challenges so um before i wrap up i just wondered if each of you could just give one sentence um i know that that would be really hard um it would be for me and um, just one sentence what would your um biggest call to action be um to the listeners so cleveland do you want to Wow, one sentence. Um, I think for me, you know, looking at some of the, and I hate using it, sort of some of the some of the long term management methodologies I've used in the past, I think we should look and you know it really includes stop, start and continue. Let's have a look at what we have done and what we can continue, what we need to do with it, what we need to stop doing, um, and what we should start doing. So for me, it's a bit of a reflection on what has worked. Um, what can work better and what hasn't worked and also in that stop 
let's stop doing some silly things that we've previously done that we've just continued doing. So that's my single Really set. good point. Really good point. Thank you, Cleveland. Helen? Yeah, um, so I think that, um, that, that, that it's really important that I'm always clear that I'm very pro-technology. I think I'm passionate about the work that I do because I can see the way that um, so many, many millions of people are benefiting from technology, digital technology tools, including um, ones that have, have just become um, in use in the last couple of months. Um, I think, obviously, I'm going to say that I think this absolutely has to be a transformation for everybody. There has to be benefits for everybody. Um, and the other thing I just want to put a plug in is for community organisations so that um, the COVID-19 emergency response at the community level is amazing. And I think the thing that I'm most impressed with, uh, particularly from the digital inclusion, digital health literacy hat on, is the the way that actually we don't need to talk about silos and holistic support and all those sorts of things because they're just doing it right that actually helping people to get access to the digital services that they need is just part and parcel of what they're doing alongside delivering food yeah. so um i think uh, it's really important that that we don't forget about that and that we see that what i think of as like that informal health service that is being delivered in in communities and organizations like like myself and like Ros, we're working with those communities, um, that they're part of the overall approach to providing better health for our nation. Um, so it's not just about a two, a one way from your, with the, from your health practitioner out into communities, actually a community already is an informal health system. So remember that and um, link back in. I'm also really happy to partner with anyone and talk to anyone else if you're interested in digital inclusion, I'm giving evidence to the DCMS Select Committee on Friday at 9.30, so you can get a bit more of an insight and some more of those stats from me then too. That's fantastic because we've had a lot of comments about people wanting to hear more from each of you. Um, Ros, um, your one sentence, <laughs> if you can. <laughs> well, my, I've got two sentences. It's one is what they said. And, um, yep. and two, um, two is really about building back better. Um, so we've had a real, um, you know, this is a, as well as being a horrible, horrible thing. We've got an opportunity here. We've learned a lot in a short period of time and we know what's really important and we have to focus. We can't, we have to focus and engage and work alongside and with those people that we've been talking about today. Um, people who are more vulnerable, people who are living in poverty, and people who are, who are, who are at more higher risk of health inequalities and being digitally and socially excluded. And we've been looking, and, and so um, I won't uh, repeat what's already been said around communities, but there's another side of this, and that is about health and care systems, people working in health and care systems, and how they, if we're going to push a digital product or a digital service, how you look at um, the communities that you want to, to support with that service and work with them around building that, understanding their life factors, what's happening to them, understanding their digital capabilities in the broader sense of the word, understanding about your, your service and your system and how accessible it is and work alongside and with those people to build an enhanced package alongside your service so that they don't miss out and they do benefit and that everybody benefits from digitally enabled health and care. 
fantastic advice there as always thank Ooh, you can Will. i put a plug in as well and if anyone's yes, particularly interested in digital inclusion and mental health we are also with we're, we're um, working in partnership with um 100 digital leads next week and delivering a training webinar and you can find out about that on our website oh fantastic i think that we've just had somebody in the chat asking um for the link to that so do feel free to put that in jim um your one final point before we complete yeah yeah and it, it'll 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 be short and it does reflect what others have said but i i suppose for those that are on this webinar my, my colleagues in health and social care I, I would say um, uh, it, it, a take-home message is be agile, be bold, be humble, and ask the community and the patients first. Uh, Fantastic. That would be Fabulous. Thank you, Jim. And um, Matt, your final um, word. So to build on what the others have said i just want to stress that um a good user experience is an equalities issue and it is a safety issue um we know that um people from low-income households are almost twice as likely to experience a, a problem with care connectedness you know missed test result appointments not booked and so on um and so fixing those things you know giving people a really good experience of the nhs whether that's digital or in person isn't a nice to have it's not something that we can afford to let go of at this time it's actually the building block um, of delivering services that work for everyone so all of the stuff that we've been working on over the years around interoperability around data being in the right place when it's needed um, all of that stuff getting those basics right is just as important now as it was um, it would be tempting to cut corners to put in little sort of silo solutions that solve one problem here um, but we need to be really clear that you know we've as we face um, staff and patients coming back into the system who've been through a really stressful time um, you know lives have been lost families have been really affected there's a lot of fear and stress um, among people delivering services that just work because we have followed standards and, and maintained the high standards that we set for ourselves is going to be even more important um, and, and not a corner that we can afford to cut. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you to all of you um, for today's um, panel and webinar. We've had some phenomenal responses and feedback already from the chat and the Q&A. Uh, before I wrap up, um, I just wanted to say what my um, final sentence was. My, my big message is get obsessed with the problem you're trying to solve, not with the technology, um, and keep coming back what the problem is because the technology may change um, as will potentially the problem and we look forward to seeing you all again thank you thank you, thank you. bye thanks bye, bye, -bye. thanks liz bye. Bye, bye thank you for listening sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.